the more data that we have, the more visibility that we have, the better off we are in detecting these anomalies and these threats that are out there. If you can't see it, you can't protect it. And so that's what I encourage a lot of companies out there is to get that cyber hygiene in place and shore up your vulnerabilities. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Chad Skipper, global security technologist from VMware. And today, we're talking about VMware's latest annual global incident response threat report. We will be linking the report in the show notes. So Chad, thanks for joining and thanks for making time. Hey, thank you, KB. Appreciate the time. It's a pleasure to be here discussing some of these statistics and areas that we're seeing out there. Yeah, most definitely. So I want to start with the key findings from the report. Now, ransomware actors incorporate cyber extortion strategies. So in a number of reports that I read and people I bring on the show, the ransomware is definitely on the rise. So talk to me a little bit more about this and what does this mean specifically? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. So these groups have really transformed from traditional aims of ransomware into something even more sinister. You know, you talked about cyber extortion. In other words, you know, criminals no longer simply want to get a ransom, but they're really staging multi-level campaigns to progressively extort their victims. In this report, we saw that nearly 60% of respondents experienced, you know, a ransomware attack in the past 12 months as these prominent, let's call them cyber cartels, continue to extort organizations through double and triple extortion techniques. Now, in the survey, it revealed one quarter of all ransomware attacks included some type of double extortion techniques. And these double extortion techniques include things like a blackmail, data auctions, and name and shame. And in fact, we're seeing in some aspects the exfiltration of that data first before they even ransom so that they can sell that data on the dark web in the black markets, as well as try to get the ransom from the victim itself. And in other areas, a triple extortion we're seeing where they'll take that data and they'll look at the data and understand from that data, your partners that you might be working with or your customers, and then they'll go extort your partners and your customers as well. So we're seeing all kinds of different types of tactics around the extortion capabilities of these threat actors that we're seeing out there in the public. Okay. So walk me through multi-level campaigns. So how many levels are there? Or it depends, obviously. What does it sort of typically look like from your experience? Let's talk about that. And we'll talk about the levels of which they gain that access. We're seeing that the penetration is either coming in two ways. One, they're trying to get the end user to interact with something malicious. Or number two, they are using stolen credentials or some type of exploit to get into some type of workload. So that's the very first stage that we're seeing from that campaign. Then what's happening is, is once they're getting into that area, they'll stay and they'll discover. And from that discovery capabilities, they'll begin to target which systems that they want to, to, to go after. And they're beginning to utilize common ports and protocols within the customer's organization. And we can talk about that later 
on them moving laterally inside to where they end up landing on a system. And from there, the next part of that is some type of remote access Trojan that allows me to get my wares on that system. And then from there, they'll exfiltrate that data out and then they'll end up ransom. So those are the different type of stages that we're seeing in this multi-level of those campaigns that are progressively getting worse within the organizations. Yeah, that's super interesting because as I sort of alluded to before, ransomware is on the rise across multiple reports that you read. Why do you think that that's the case though? Is it just a lot easier to do? People will hand over the money. I mean, I've seen it so many times across the globe, mind you, not just here in Australia, but it just seems to be like the increase is, is like a hockey stick, right? It's quite intense. So I'm curious to know, like, why do you think that's the case from what you're seeing? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, of the financial security leaders that we interviewed for this year's Bank House report, which was released in, in April, of those who were breached by ransomware, 63% paid the ransom. That's why, you know, cast a wide net and get paid in almost two thirds of the time. That's a reason of this continual going on. But furthermore, we saw custom malware in, in one third or basically 20% of the attacks, you know, when you see custom malware, those typical antivirus software might not have the capabilities to detect, you know, the behavioral anomalies such as those malware uh, pose. Also, you know, further on, today's threat actors continuously look for methods of evading and counter incident response. Now, these techniques are things like, I'm going to reset your password. Others are, I'm going to use trusted software. We call this living off the land. And this is where they hide within the noise of your own ports and protocols. We're also seeing things like manipulating timestamps. That went up 62% from 58% last year. And this allows the attackers now to move around inside a network. And it makes it even more difficult for the IR teams to detect their activities. And also the evasiveness of it, the adversaries are also going after the IR teams themselves, where, you know, the responders said that we're seeing the adversaries target our responders in 33% of the time, or they're going to tamper with the agents in 28% of the time, or they're going to try to monitor that inbound communications from that IR team. So those are some areas in, in, from that perspective. But, you know, like I said, when they're going to get paid two-thirds of the time, and we continue to see these evasive tactics implemented via malware, including things like, I'm going to check the disk size, or I'm going to you know, stall against the, their analysis in an environment. I'm going to do things like checking for particular product names to see if those product names are in there. And if they are, going to to get out of this to get out of that area you know i also see this as as adversaries are using these evasion tactics as a mean of discovery too to really try to get a sense of where they are in an evaluation environment and if so abort now for instance threat actors are checking for the presence of certain keyboard drivers, and if certain keyboard drivers are found in the system they're trying to compromise they'll immediately abort their malicious activity. This is maybe trying to find out where they are geographically in the world. You know, and our teams need many different capabilities here to be able to uh, understand and detect these evasion techniques that we're seeing in the forefront. 
Okay, I want to get into paying the ransom. Now, I've spoken to a range of people about this. They've all got different views. I want to hear your view, but I'll then explain, start the scene a little bit for you, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on it. So, for example, I interviewed another gentleman a few weeks ago. He's representing ISACA and was about a report that ISACA released as well. And he was sort of saying in his experience, when he's going in looking at a company, because it's very expensive to hire security practitioners, he was sort of saying, you know, I may look at a situation and it may be just easier to pay the ransom rather than bring in all these people that cost a lot more, they get it back. He said, sometimes even the adversary will even tell you how they got in as an additional cost, apparently. Then I've also had people say, yeah, well, you shouldn't pay the ransom. A lot of people say that, of course. And then I've even heard other people saying, yeah, but if you pay the ransom, you're actually then funding like human trafficking, drug mills, you know, criminal syndicates. So I mean, it's a tricky one to answer, but like, do you have any answers? Because like myriad of people say myriad of different things. And I just want to sort of get a good barometer here. Yeah, it's a lose-lose. It's a lose-lose. And it's situational for everybody. You know, I would always edge on understanding the situation, but I would always edge on not paying the ransom. You've got to shore up. You've got to shore up your vulnerabilities anyway. You know, you should have backups. I know a lot of times that doesn't happen. But at the end of the day, it's a lose-lose. I would edge on not paying the ransom, shoring up my vulnerabilities to not become a victim of that again. Yeah, most definitely. Because I think, you know, when you're in that scenario, especially as a customer and you're like, you can't do things or you're freaking out because you've got your board of directors on your back or whatever the case may be, they're just thinking about themselves in that moment about we've got to get back online, we've got to get our data back, we've got to be able to keep operating, right? So they're probably not thinking beyond, if I pay these people, what does that money then go towards? So I think that it's more an awareness piece of, yes, of course, you're in a terrible situation, but you're also fueling these people to do it again. Like you were sort of saying before. Well, um, they double down. Yes. Right, right. They double down after that. So that's another aspect of it. If I pay, they know I'm willing to pay. Therefore, I'm going to not only continue to find other avenues inside your organization. My peers know that you just paid. So my peers are going to go after you and that organization as well. So now you're opening up to further attacks from those threat actors peers because they know that you've paid in the past and the likelihood of you paying the future is fairly high. So in your experience, have you ever seen a customer continuously paid ransom like because of this exact scenario that maybe they pay one ransom and then they let their buddies know and then all of a sudden there's you know a few others in there trying to do the same thing because they know that they're going to pay it. Have you seen that type of behavior happen? I have seen behaviors happen to where an organization was forced into a situation to where they, yes, they were penetrated by multiple, let's call them cyber ransomware cartels and had to pay multiple ransoms. Yes. Wow. Okay. How do you sort of handle that situation as a security practitioner yourself? Like, how do you, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? It really comes back to finding the vulnerabilities, shoring up those vulnerabilities within your organization and moving forward with a game plan that says, look, there's hygiene first. You know, there's many different ways in which you can provide from a hygiene perspective. But since these guys are very evasive, you have to put defensive mechanisms, defensive measures in place where it gives you visibility, right, into what I would call every packet and every process. Because security is a data problem. The more data that we have, the more visibility that we have, the better off we are in detecting these anomalies and these threats that are out there. You know, if you can't see it, you can't protect it. 
And so that's what I encourage a lot of companies out there is to get that cyber hygiene in place and shore up your vulnerabilities. Yeah, great point. Great point. So I want to move on to something in terms of APIs. Now, I don't know whether you've been following the news here about large Australian teleco. There's still speculation about the specifics of what happened, but they are talking about an API. So I really want to get into this and understand some of the insights captured from the report that APIs are the new endpoint representing the new frontier for attackers. So what's happening here? Yeah, modern applications, right? That's what's happening. When the vast majority of traffic is internal and the backbone of that traffic are API calls, you know, adversaries are going to notice. And and in this particular survey, we saw that nearly one quarter of about 23% of the attacks now compromise API security as these platforms emerge as a promising new endpoint for those threat actors to exploit. Now, that is a major reason why. Now, in those is SQL and API injection attacks, as well as the distributed denial of service attacks. But in the case that we're seeing today, That's exactly what we're seeing is from a modern applications can standpoint, containers and Kubernetes, APIs being the backbone is why we're seeing an uptick in in what we see those API attacks. Wow. Okay. So what can people do? I mean, it's a bit of a hard question to answer. Like, you know, it's a bit of a detailed response to really get into the specifics, but maybe it just at a high level, what can people do because of what's happened in the market, especially here in Australia, to reduce a lot of these API related attacks? Yeah, that really comes down to the API security. You really need to enable both developers and the security teams to gain really a comprehensive understanding of when, where, and how APIs are communicating even across your multi-cloud environments. You know, web API security is challenging because of the multi-cloud workloads make up that API usage, which makes us more, more vulnerable. So, Let's talk about what companies can do to reduce, right, those API-related attacks. Number one, API discovery and observability. Uh, Again, like what I told you earlier, I said earlier, you can't protect what you don't know about or what you can't see. So as internal and external APIs proliferate, tools are necessarily help reduce the complexity of those API-related attacks. Now, You know, many are implementing API gateways and API portals to make it easier to manage manage those APIs. So that's one area. Another area is post-authorization API, you know, what we call threat detection and response. So attacks and breaches are increasingly being perpetrated in this post-authentication and the authorization phase of, of the APIs. So we need to look deeper within that API data payload. So in there, we can look at threats within the application and the API data payload. As an example, you've got to understand that traffic and what that API payload is. Is this PII data? Is this PHI data? Is this HIPAA data? And if there's any difference in that data, you would want some type of anomaly to come up and tell you, look, we're seeing different types of flows and different types of data in those flows that we are normally seeing. Another one is identify and correct the vulnerabilities within the organization to protect that entire API lifecycle from planning to development, to test, to production, 
you've really got to understand those vulnerabilities and, and, and take a look at those vulnerabilities from that perspective. Other areas, we've talked about this, the industry's talked about this in the past, provide end-to-end encryption, use authentication and authorization as well. And finally, I would talk more about baselining for anomaly detection. For your normal situations, I say normal, in a lot of cases, APIs are, are fairly, what I would say, consistent in what you're seeing within the API aspect. So if you can baseline those APIs and then provide some type of machine learning or anomaly detection, then you're going to be able to see these anomalous behaviors, um, such as data flows that should not be happening, access from a different geographical location. And, and then last, route requests through an API gateway. Significantly, that's going to help us from that perspective. And I say last, I'll say last this one last time, service mesh, right? Utilize the service mesh. This really connects application workloads, microservices, the APIs, and the data inside that east-west pattern. So that gives us the ability to leverage the infrastructure, the logic, and the rules to route those API requests and, and can increase the security of those large deployments within those multiple APIs. Thanks for sharing that. Do you think, Chad, that APIs just go under the radar a little bit? Like people kind of just forget that, oh, we should probably look at that. We should probably look at protecting that as well. Is that like a common thing that you see? I mean, it's probably not intentional. I hope not. But it could just be something that gets overlooked. Well, that's a good question. You know, we've heard digital transformation. As as we go through the digital transformation and as we begin to embrace this multi-cloud, and as we see the proliferation of containers and, and, and the Kubernetes, then naturally what comes of that is, is this progression now towards what I'm seeing more and more of, how do we begin to secure the inner workings of the application? How do we begin to secure the inner network of all of these applications? So I think it's becoming more and more mainstream as we further move into this multi-cloud arena. Yeah, and I guess going back to your point before around the devs and the security team to cooperate a bit more and have that open dialogue, do you think, I mean, it's not necessarily a silver bullet, but do you think if there was more cooperation between these teams, perhaps it reduced a lot of these attacks? Well, absolutely. When there's more cooperation between your DevSecOps, your development, as well as the security pertaining to it and the operations, the tighter that you are within that organization the better off that you will be. Collaboration is always key. Do you have some advice for, for better dec, uh, DevSecOps or Sec DevOps or wh- whatever you want to call it? Because it's something that people often talk about in the space. And I mean, it seems easy on paper, like, oh, you just go and collaborate with other people. But, you know, it, it's a hard task to do. So do you have sort of any high-level advice for people that, that want to sort of get closer with their development team as well as their security team? Absolutely. Get involved in their iterative process, get involved in the scrums, get involved in the daily standups, get involved in understanding the business outcome of that particular application. And I've seen that very successful with companies that I've talked to is where their CISO, their CSO organization, they have dedicated individuals that understand the nature of the business as well as what it needs uh, to secure the underlying applications. And they're involved in the daily development of those applications and provide consultative services on 
look, if we go down this route, we need to address these vulnerabilities or it's a risk, right? These, these vulnerabilities or a risk. And then also brings in the ability to understand the architecture and, and look deeply at the code and see if there's any underlying vulnerabilities in that code as well, such as buffer overflows and those aspects. But that's what I've seen to be successful is, is get involved in the daily scrums, the daily environment, the daily development environment and understanding the business value there and, and then try to steer the ship from the most secure process that you can. Can I just ask, why would security people not be involved? Why would they not be involved? Yeah, is it because they don't think about it or they can be bothered? Like, why, why, like I mean, it's not like it sounds obvious, but it's, it, it's a, you know, what you're saying makes sense, right? So I'm just curious as to know why this isn't happening as much as it should be or could be. You know, that's a good question. You know, I don't really know the answer to that, to be honest with you. It sounds natural to me when I talk to organizations uh, of including your CISO, your CSO organization in, in your development efforts from the very beginning. So when I find that this continues to happen, is it surprising? No, but it's something that that's why I bring it up. That's why we bring it up in this call. It's something that we hope that we concede in the ongoing development organization to include your security SME through your development process. Yeah, I absolutely hear what you're saying. Like it does seem more obvious and and it seems like the thing that people should be doing. But yeah, it's, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people, it's just, it doesn't happen or they don't think about it or perhaps no one's informed them the way that makes sense for their organization or they don't have the resources, for example. So I think that that's a really good point to raise because yes, it does seem like the thing to do, but it does get overlooked. And hopefully you know, with this show and everything that we're you know, talking about today, to close that gap. But I want to sort of move on a little bit more now and talk about the lateral movement, which was seen 25% of the attacks in the report. And that lateral movement is the new battleground. So what do you mean by the term battleground? Or what, we, or what is you know, the, the term that's being coined? What does that mean specifically? So if we go back and, and take a look at the history of where we've been from a cybersecurity perspective, naturally it started, it started at the end point, right? The end point. So a lot of focus on the end point. I'm not taking away focus from the end point. And then there's focus at the edge. So it's all about, okay, you know, north, south, ingress, egress to that endpoint and what's missing or what has been missing. And now that we have technology to give us visibility, is once I get, you know, that initial access, threat actors are staying inside the organizations, you know, hundreds of days without being detected. So the new battleground is once I gain that initial access, what are they doing once I'm inside of that organization? East, West, internal flows, right? Once the attacker is, is in, the question you got to ask yourself is, can you see it? it not just on the endpoint but what it's doing throughout the network as it discovers, as it moves laterally to other devices to ultimately exfiltrate data and then ransom. The thing is, if you can't see it, you can't protect it. And that's why we call this the new battleground. It's getting visibility into every packet and process within your multi-cloud, right? So, you know, as an example, we saw 25% in, in this survey VMware Contexa, that's our threat intelligence cloud, showed that in April and May alone, once a threat actor gained initial access and 44% of the time, 
they were able to move laterally once inside. Now, once inside, in 80% of those cases, they only island hopped. I mean, I'm only hopping to device to device. They only island hopped to two to three devices in 80% of the time, which means that these threat actors are acutely focused on where they want to move to next, right? They're hiding. The reason that we say it's a new battleground is because they're hiding in the noise of the customer's common ports and protocols. As an example, they're using remote desktop protocol, RDP, just like a, a user administrators do to log in remotely. Once they have creds, they're using pass the hash over Kerberos to gain access laterally to another machine. And they're using Samba service to laterally move malware to adjacent systems or remote access trojans to adjacent systems. Now, RDP, you know, past Kerberos and Samba, the common protocols being used inside within, within the organizations. And all of this is really east-west or internal lateral movement. The question then becomes is, you know, what, based on all your RDP sessions, what, hundreds, thousands, millions of RDP sessions that are going on in some, some organizations, can you detect the five anomalous RDP sessions that that threat actor is using to move laterally within your organization? And so that's why we believe, you know, within the multi-cloud, giving inside East-West, that lateral movement, detecting that lateral movement and those anomalies is that new battleground in order to help reduce the dwell time of those threat actors inside the organization. So Chad, just to just to press on a little bit more. So once they're inside, are you sort of just saying that typically uh, going back to the 80%, they're just then island hopping and they're just sort of getting to where they want to go typically? Or what about what, what about the other 20%? What are they sort of doing? Yeah, that's a great question. The other 20% are really testing out the environment. They're moving laterally 40, 60, 70, 80 different devices as they're trying to get a better understanding and bearing of that infrastructure. So the latter is really, the last 20% is, is where they really get involved and start moving within, within the organization. But the first 80% is, is really targeted. You know, I'm going to be in there and I'm just going to target those two to three devices. So just to confirm, the 80% are sort of moving, yeah, let's call it they're moving a bit, bit slower and they're taking their time, whereas the, the last 20% are moving at more of a velocity and, and a rapid speed. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that, you-, that, that you, can, you can position it that way. They are discovering and moving more. The latter 20% are definitely penetrating and moving more laterally and using an island hopping across many different systems. We're at the latter, the latter 20% of that number. So we focus on the 20% for a second. So the 80% is sort of for a specific reason. They're looking for something specific. Mm-hmm. What are the 20% looking for? Just to see whatever they can get their, their virtual hands on? You know, I'll have to go deeper into to, to the data. You know, a lot of that, again, is from what we're seeing on the lateral movement is using those common ports and protocols. So in most cases, what they're looking for is IP. They're looking for something to exfiltrate out, outside the organization. That is what they're looking for. What can I make money off of? And then move from device to device to device to device, looking at that device to determine if that is something there that's monetizable. So, I mean, the 80 and the 20%, let's call them two buckets. Obviously, they're both worrying because they're in there regardless. Which one, if you had to wait, is more worrying? The 80%? Because they're sort of taking it slow and steady, taking their time, looking for something 
a bit more specific that may be of a lot more value, would you say, or is that not the case? Not necessarily the case. I wouldn't put it in perspective of which one is worth looking for, which one's not worth looking for. I would position this as no matter if it's the 80% or the 20% that we talked about, uh, whether they're moving to less devices, I wouldn't say slower. I would say to less devices versus the other one moving to more devices. The fact of the matter is they're using common ports and protocols to do that. And the question then becomes, uh, how are you going to detect those anomalous movements over things like RDP, over things like Kerberos, over things like Samba, right? Because that's exactly what's happening. Okay, I'd like to talk about deep fakes. This is a big one. It's wild. It's pretty scary. I've spoken about this a few times on the show and my other show as well. Some of them are really well done, hard to detect. And as per the report, this is on the rise. So what does this then mean for businesses? Yeah, so generally speaking, we've seen these attacks break down as follows, right? So deep fake, both audio and video are, are being used to manipulate humans. Now, there may be confusion generally in the media eyes of what constitutes, you know, a deep fake. But that being said, they generally bucket any synthetic human interaction as that deep fake. I'm not aware of any good detection techniques other than the human, right, to detect these in the wild. Generally, what we're seeing is these are being used to facilitate wire transfer fraud, as well as trick administrators, IT folks, into things like password resets. You know, I have colleagues on my team where this has been confirmed by many incident response folks that, you know, they have met with over the last several months. I would say this at scale, detecting deep fakes video is, is somewhat problematic. You know, there's been work done at, at Facebook and Google, but that being said, the detection mechanisms or the detection methods really are looking at what I would say right now is a lower data set of deepfake videos. And so with that lower data set, you know, it becomes very difficult to break down and get really good detection capability. So the key takeaway here is right now, You've got to educate and you've got to speak with your financial and IT staff first. They need to know how this is happening. They need to know what to look for. And there also needs to be an understanding between if these things happen, what is the process that I go through in order to determine if this is indeed a deep fake? Okay, there's a lot of things going on in there that you said. Okay, I want to start with you said at the moment, there's not really any good detection techniques? Do you think there will be? Well, hopefully, but like how, yeah. how soon? Let me explain it this way. Machine learning, right? It's going to take machine learning to be able to understand these deep fakes. And with a, with a machine learning, you, you've got to have a data pool. You've got to have a significant data set in order to train that machine learning. I haven't seen a significant enough data set and I'm not in the know enough, right? There might be something out there but I have not seen a significant enough data set in order to actually train a machine learning model to detect a synthesized fake human voice, a synthesized fake video. I just, I haven't seen anything there just yet. Now, technology is technology. We, you know, I, I have a firm 
you know, belief that yes, in the future, we will be able to detect these types of things. I just haven't seen any good detection techniques out there today. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for being honest with that one. I think that yeah, it's not an it's not an easy one to answer because we don't have all the answers. If you were to educate people now and they are worried about, okay, we've got to educate our staff, what would be the top things that you would do? And you mentioned something before. What do you look for? So you mentioned like saying, if you look at something like these are the things that you typically know that was a deep fake, for example. So can you sort of explain maybe like the top couple of steps that you would take as, as an employee, perhaps that executives can, can educate their staff on to ensure that they are you know, not falling victim of, of, of an attack that's quite sophisticated? Yeah, I would, I would suggest that the organizations really take a look at what I would call SOPs or standard operating procedures. Build your standing operating procedures around the way that we see these deep fakes happening in some cases is you get a phone call, right? And there are certain things that you do not want to instantiate over a phone call. That's a wire transfer. You just don't want to take a phone call and it sounds like so-and-so and it seems to be so-and-so, but you know, you don't want to necessarily take that on a phone. So do something like a two-person integrity, TPI, where it says, okay, now I've been asked to this wire transfer, who's my second person integrity, two-person integrity, TPI, in order for me to validate that this is a wire transfer that, that I want to happen. So it goes back to my military days. That's what I just said, TPI, two-person integrity. That's, a, that's an aspect of it, standard operating procedures. You know, that, that's an area that, that I would focus on from that perspective you know, from a voice or somebody calling you directly for those types of wire transfers. You know, the video right now, the ones that I've seen, there's been some good videos, but there are, you know, tricks of that that you've seen. Maybe the voice is, is not accurate with the lips, right? That becomes very difficult. If you have any questions whatsoever, I would take the zero trust model <laughs> and say, you know, maybe trust, but verify and you want to, you want to double down and verify. It's a very good point. I think uh, for someone like myself that I've done a lot of podcast episodes, I do a lot of video stuff, so I'm just using myself potentially as uh, as an example of that. Uh, yeah, that is worrying. Do you think that we'll get to a stage in the future where we, we can't tell like who's the real Chad? Like It's so sophisticated. It's so good. Seems like Chad, talks like Chad, the vernacular is like Chad, but it's actually, in fact, deep fake. Do you think it'll be that sophisticated? And of course, like when you're going to that level, like you said, if the, the lips match with how people are, are talking, that's quite, quite involved, quite sophisticated. A lot of time is spent on that. So do you think it will get to that level? And will, it, will we be in a stage where we become almost delusional around, well, who is the real Chad by this stage? You know, I haphazardly joke about this with my colleagues, but we're kind of living in somewhat of the Skynet age, right? Skynet from Terminator. You can see evidence of that in a lot of the technologies that we see. And uh, unfortunately, there's always going to be the dark side of technology. And unfortunately, yes, I foresee this being a, a challenge for us in, in the future. I mean, if you take a look at some of, you know, I don't have it on me right now, but I do believe there was, you know, the FBI released something on a deep fake not too long ago on wire transfer frauds and seeing a significance of that on the rise. So, you know, 
yes, I unfortunately see that we're going to see further advancement here in deepfakes. So in terms of everything we've spoken about today, Chad, do you have any sort of closing thoughts, final comments, especially because of your, your role at VMware as you know, global security technologist? What would be sort of your summary and key takeaways for people after today's interview? Yeah, from a multi-cloud perspective, as, as we get into the multi-cloud, I've got a few things that might help. You want to focus on workloads holistically. You know, antivirus is not enough. You need to understand the inner workings of that workload instead of keeping them, you know, out of the network, right? So understand, focus on your workloads holistically and understand, you know, exactly what those are. Number two, you know, inspect in-band traffic. This is east-west traffic that we talked about. Do not assume that all east-west's traffic is safe once it's, you know, gone past the perimeter. Modern attacks succeed by distinguishing themselves as legitimate IT ports and protocols. Another one I would, I would really, you know, start talking about is we need to begin to th- think about integrating multiple detection technologies, your NDR and your EDR as an example. Detection and response technologies employs, you know, this real time on the endpoint, seeing every process. And it's the same time on the network, seeing every packet, bringing together, you know, your endpoint telemetry and your network telemetry can really provide visibility into the blind spots and help you connect the dots across that attack chain, seeing everything from initial access to lateral movement all the way out to exfiltration. And then lastly, I would say conduct continuous threat hunting. Security, you know, offense informs defense. Security teams should assume attackers have multiple avenues into their organization. And threat hunting on the network, as well as devices, can help security teams detect uh, behavioral anomalies, as an example, and, and really understand their networks better. That was excellent. Appreciate it, Chad. I really loved this conversation. I think it's been informative. It was to the point, and I believe that our listeners will take a lot of your amazing insights today. So thanks for making time and thanks for joining the show. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.